0: Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels.
1: I'm Kerbs. And I'm Lish. And this week, we're joining forces with one of the world's fiercest warriors, Mulan. So saddle up and prepare for something epic as we get down to business discussing the film that sparked a new breed of powerful Disney heroines.
0: So before we get into the main event here, I want to just take a minute to Thank everyone, not just our listeners, but those people who are following us on Instagram, Scenario D Podcast, and going to our Instagram stories every Tuesday and voting Mm. for Team Lish because Team Lish is absolutely killing it. I'm like four for four at this point. I feel so attacked. Okay, when you
1: said you wanted to thank people for doing the polls? I thought this was gonna be like a nice, like, oh my gosh, Curbs and I really appreciate it. You are coming out for blood. Listen, listeners, this is an SOS. This is a Mayday signal from Curbs. You may have noticed that I am yeah. losing every time. Now, every time Lish Lish says that it's because she has objectively better taste than me. I think I'm a beautiful and unique snowflake with a really interesting flavor and none of y'all are picking up what I'm putting down and I've just I'm feeling a little attacked I'm not a little very attacked you really came for me there I did not expect that (laughs) can't I yeah wow guys honestly I mean all in all seriousness I am thrilled that you're participating in the polls we love putting those together it's like a highlight of our week as well Mm -hmm. but like come on now give curbs a win Get, and all of you who didn't say Gaston is sexy, I can't. I'm on. I honestly am so surprised. But we're not talking about Gaston today
0: as much as we're I'd not. Like we're to. not here for Gaston. I'm gonna shut oh, this down really, really fast. Mm. Yeah. All right. Fine. What are we here for? then? <laughs> we're here for <laughs> Mulan. Okay, and fair. that's a good trade. Curbs. I have so much regret. So much regret. Mm. I Me too. can't believe that I made this mistake. I put Mulan at number eight on my princess ranking list. Eight. She's not an eight. Oh, my I know. gosh. And I put her at nine. And, like, when I'm looking at
1: this now, like, I'm sure we'll revisit it at the end of the season mm-hmm. to go through our rankings and, like, clean it up and fix it. But I – I am not pleased with, honestly, my seven through nine is bad. Like, I should change it. Yeah. Significantly. I
0: I feel like I need to – you're going to hate this, but I feel Mm. like I need to swap Mulan and Rapunzel. Like, I think that's just like a straight – yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I might feel differently after we do that movie, but I'm just like – I loved Mulan so much when I was a kid. It was like the – badass princess that I had been waiting for my whole life and Mm -hmm. I was so excited. I watched it all the time. I loved it and I don't know why I just like completely forgot about all the great things about this movie when we were doing this. I did too. Yeah, as
1: like as soon as I put it on, it's one of those movies where for whatever reason over the past few years it just felt like a lot of work for me to watch Mm -hmm. it and I don't, I can't even articulate why. I think it's because I watched it so much as a kid that I misremembered certain parts and not like that I forgot how the movie went I think I emphasized or like in my own head made bigger the few small things that maybe I didn't love about it and turned those into Mm -hmm. problems when they're not problems like as soon as the movie started I was completely in it like from that opening shot of the great wall I'm like and we're here like I'm ready and I'm I'm not emotionally prepared for the journey we're about to go (laughs) go (laughs) on that movie it's so good the emotion is so real and like I am team fazu Till the day I die. Like oh, I. Yeah. So good. Every time he looks guy. at Mulan and is like, I'm proud of you. I'm crying.
0: Like yeah. I'm, I'm crying.
1: Like not. And I, I guys, I don't say that. It is a hyperbole. Like tears. Mm-hmm. Tears Actual are coming. Yes. Yeah. Because it's so beautiful. But mm-hmm. I digress. I could talk all day about Gaston and Fazu. Just had to get Gaston in there again. Love you, babe. But like. Yeah, uh, classic. Yeah.
0: But I feel like we owe it to this movie then. To go back to the beginning,
1: to the very start.
0: I want to talk about 1994 because not only mm-hmm. is this around the time where Mulan is just getting started in pre production, right. it is also just the biggest <laughs> crap shoot on the executive <laughs> level of Disney. Like, it's just like things are really starting to fall apart here. It's like, It's Big Thunder Mountain and all the executives
1: are in it and they're like, they're going up and you hear it all rattling around and you're like, this can't be safe. And they're like, it's fine. Hands in the air. Oh
0: my gosh. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not wrong. You're not. You're definitely not. We've got our, I'm going to talk about our like four key players that we had at the start of 1994. So we've got Eisner, still our Mm -hmm. CEO. Frank Wells is the president. Our um, not-so-favorite Jeffrey Katzenberg (laughs) heading up Disney Studios, and then Roy Disney, the head of the animation department. Right. So this is is basically as much of a hard time as we give some of these gentlemen. Mm. These are the people that were in leadership as the renaissance that's happening. So we have to give them some credit for rebirthing the Disney company and making it what it is today.
1: I thought when I heard you say these men were in love I thought you were going to say like men we were in love with and I'm like since when like we have <laughs> <No>. honestly <laughs> murdered all of these men with our words uh for various reasons especially yeah. K-Berg, which yeah. we will get to yeah, in much we'll get detail to but just yes. had to have to but throw that out But on there.
0: a on a more serious note um the president Frank Wells died very tragically in a helicopter accident in 1994 which mm-hmm. kind of set off a turn of events that you know, was leading towards Disney coming out of the race right. on glory, unfortunately. So it turns out yeah. he was the one, he was the glue holding this ship together. And when he was gone, it really just started to sink. So so like um, me when you're gone.
1: <laughs> yeah. I How mean, I am like, when
0: Lish is not around. <laughs> it's It's like if one of us is trying to do this podcast without the other one, it's just not it's not good. It's not gonna you happen. Need, yeah, you need the good. package. That that That's was true. Frank Wells and Michael Eisner. So oh. very sad, mm-hmm. sad time for Disney for sure. But it it, like I said, added a lot of tension, especially between Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. Even right. before Wells passed away, K. Berg mm-hmm. was really pushing for a promotion. He wanted that president role, the like number two seat uh disney and there's like this interview where he claims that eisner promised it to him this is while frank wells was still alive so i so katzenberg having that information you'd think oh well this guy just died i'm the obvious choice for this role yeah so pretty much right after he died eisner announced that he was actually going to take over those responsibilities (laughs) (laughs) Sike. so like that's kind of a pretty big kick in the pants if you're Katzenberg thinking that's gonna be you and that's so much so he resigned um pretty much right away so 1994 this is you know while they're working on Pocahontas Lion King just rapping Mulan starting Hercules all these all these uh classics are in the mix, and Katzenberg's like, bye. I want to point out for our listeners that
1: Lish put in our notes here after Kberg resigned in 1994 and then in brackets, lowercase yay, with an exclamation mark. <laughs> she also has in here yay. the fact that Eisner had a heart attack and Katzenberg was not on the oh, short yeah. list of people notified and that upset him. That really bummed him out.
0: <laughs> that was just like an extra... An extra kick in the pants because it's like the the CEO of the company is down and just <laughs> Jeffrey's phone did him. not ring. I'm just picturing him sitting at home like <laughs> reading a newspaper. It did not, and like everyone else is getting calls and he's just like, "No yeah. well, time to turn in." <laughs> yeah, I. We don't like Katzenberg, but I feel for him in this moment. I I do. I do. Like, the writing was obviously on the wall. Like, he couldn't stay at this point. Like, he was not going to get the job that he wanted. There was no upward growth for him. It was just for whatever reason between these two was just not going to work. So um, I think we know what happened next for him. He went off and Mm -hmm. created DreamWorks. And you know, maybe we'll do a season on right. that at some with point with less but, venom in our voices. Yeah, or uh, another day about Katzenberg. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll try. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. He ended up suing the Disney company. Whoa. It was like a whole thing. Like, did not. This was not like a thing that Mm-mm. ended on good terms. He ended up. They ended up settling for one hundred and seventeen million dollars. Is that a insane. lot or a little? I'm gonna be honest. I can't tell. For these people. Uh. Um, I mean, I okay. think that's a like, lot Like, I know of it's a lot to us,
1: but I'm like, yeah. if you're... I mean, just watch. Yeah. This was his seed money to start DreamWorks.
0: <laughs> He's like, fine, I'll do it on my own. It might have yeah. been, honestly. Why not? Um, because it turned out he had made, like, some kind of deal in his contract mm-hmm. with Frank Wells, where he was supposed to get 2% of all of the, like, merchandising yeah. and everything for all of those films that happened during the Renaissance. So that's, like, a pretty hefty chunk of change just even a small piece of the money that some Mm -hmm. of those movies no it's true we are down (laughs) to two so we have just got eisner and roy disney left for the time being they're Mm getting they're getting along um eisner named michael ovitz the president and fired him promptly 14 months later good run uh his severance was 38 million so they're kind of hemorrhaging yeah bleeding money at the executive level at this point Yeah. yeah seriously Um, So yeah, this is kind of like the beginning of the end of the Disney magic that Mm -hmm. is the Renaissance. And I know it's 1994, but it, it, you know, takes time for the magic to trickle out. And I think, you know, Mulan still got some of that in it, but you can definitely see parts that were just not as... Mm -hmm. fine-tuned as some of the earlier films that came out they're definitely on a downward well and i mean because the leadership team was so shaky
1: some of the other big changes they were making with disney animation in particular like we should have known it wouldn't last so the in particular what i'm referring to is the fact that while all of this chaos is happening like fully off the rails like we've got wheels falling off like katzenberg (laughs) is you know starting a fire underneath everybody and just like praying they'll fall in. Disney animation was still expanding. So (laughs) now it was not only in just, you know, a few buildings in this Glendale industrial park, but they had also moved to the other side of the country. So Florida had always been home to Mm -hmm. some animation stuff for Disney but they opened a new feature animation division, which was a big deal. And this was, we talked about this in the Little Mermaid episode. They had that animation zoo, you called it, at like Disney MGM. Um, yes. Rest in yes. peace, MGM. Mixed feelings. Yeah. Mixed feelings about it. But So they had always had some artists who were actively working on Disney films in Florida. But they decided, mm-hmm. you know, we need to make this bigger. We need to like go all in on Disney animation because Rory was pushing for it in like a big way. Um, so Mulan was actually the first film made entirely by Disney's Florida animation unit, which up until this point, they had only contributed 10 to 20 minute segments of films, but nothing that substantial. And I mean, while this branch of the animation studio is no longer operational, it did play a significant role in a number of feature films in that later half of the Renaissance. uh, As you mentioned, when things kind of started Mm -hmm. to just die on the table a little bit. So you it's again because of all this unrest at the top it's no surprise that the foundation is also maybe a bit shaky like you know
0: everything's swaying
1: around in the breeze yeah a
0: little bit I mean I think one of my favorite things about this shift is it allowed some of the talent that was in Florida that was maybe only you know a little bit right. involved here and there to mm-hmm. really shine one of the names oh. being Mark Hen who had been working at the Florida studio for years uh, finally, got the opportunity to be the you know lead supervising animator of Mulan, Incredible. the character in this film, which was really really big because he'd been working you know alongside artists mm. like Glen Keane on some of the other major princess movies, but on a much smaller scale. So I think it's really cool that you know they got Florida yes. got their moment uh, to to really mm-hmm. take the front seat and shine. So he was one of the main people to come out of that. Another uh, name that I wanted to mention was Chen Yi Shang. So he was raised in Taiwan and because of that, was very familiar with the legend of Mulan, very passionate mm-hmm. about the story. And he was brought on to design the characters. So I think that played a huge impact in the look and feel of the characters oh, in this film. And I think he did a great job on doing something a little bit different while still having that, you know, Disney approachability to them there's just kind of that Mm -hmm. disney look that you know sometimes i think it's harder for people that are newer to the company or coming from different cultures to come in and really emulate and i think he really struck a good balance absolutely characters yeah they made sure to have a variety of faces and shapes so that everybody looked a bit different so if you look at that main gang of three ling yao champo yeah, so they really tried to diversify that, making it giving characters their kind of own, you know, unique stature and not just their faces mm-hmm. and their facial hair and all that, but in the actual shape of the characters, which I think worked very successful in this. Film. Yeah,
1: and you see that even in the Imperial Army, too. Like, I'm thinking that scene where Shanyu is confronting the two, like, scouts from the Imperial mm-hmm. Army, the yeah. two scouts look dramatically different. And then all five of Shan Yu's kind of henchmen with the exception of of course the twins who are clearly twins, but they all look dramatically different. Like it's not cutting and pasting faces unlike in like Aladdin. They didn't do that so well, for example. yeah, Or even in Pocahontas, you don't really see that with a lot of those like background settlers and even with the Powhatan tribe themselves. Like it's a lot of cutting and pasting and you don't have that
0: in Mulan. Yeah. Yeah. I I really liked that and noticed that this time around uh, watching it. So Mm -hmm. this one took um, five years to make, which is, you know, not crazy long, but definitely they took longer in the pre-production phase of this one. They actually Mm -hmm. struggled to find their footing in terms of a style for it. Uh, They spent a lot of time in China, which I think was really important. But a lot of the things that they noticed with Chinese art and things that they wanted to incorporate in terms of landscape – they were really contradicting to the more recent things that Disney had done. So if you look at something like mm-hmm. the Lion King or Hunchback, which is what all of the artists are coming off of, they're so detailed. They have focused really on like details, not just in the characters, but if you look at those backgrounds, like cathedral or in yes. like jungle, like you're, it's very different feel. Then Mm -hmm. Mulan, which is really more of a focus on big shapes and just small little details within that. So I think a lot of the artists actually struggled when they were getting going just because it was so different from the films they had previously worked on. So it took Mm -hmm. a little bit to kind of get that contrast and everything right. Yeah. And
1: palette wise, too, the film goes from bright, like light to dark very quickly Mm -hmm. as well with so with so many specific you know, shades of red, shades of blue, shades of black. And mm-hmm. I mean, Chinese art in general is much more landscape focused and much less character focused, which also yeah. would be different because yeah. um, especially when they're trying to intentionally design characters with different facial features and different body shapes and stuff, it, it, it it's kind of a contradiction of sorts. So mm-hmm. the way that they seem to kind of, you know, strike gold though, is with emphasizing a lot of those billowing shapes that you see in things like Chinese calligraphy or in a lot of paintings with things like clouds and waves. So, I mean, from the very opening of the film, you see like that beautiful calligraphy shot of it, right? Drawing the mountains and then it fades into the Great Wall throughout the whole film in the water, in trees, in wind, in smoke. You see those kind of curling billowing shapes which helped connect some of these elements that the animators were having a tough time marrying on their own for sure and it really helped to serve as a way of honoring the Chinese art that they were trying to um, both emulate and repurpose for the film um, while also giving it a lot of visual texture without adding those details that you were talking about that they were kind of trying to avoid because I mean billowing clouds those are big large shapes you don't need A bunch of tiny clouds you need one big one that says a lot right so exactly um, exactly and i mean the film as a whole even as a kid i remember when i would watch it i'm like this movie looks different from all Mm -hmm. the other disney movies i've watched and it wasn't i wasn't able to articulate that it was how backgrounds and colors were kind of articulated but that is really what the difference is so i mean everyone's able to pick up on it they did a good job of making it feel distinct definitely
0: yeah they definitely found their footing so i think it was worth maybe the extra time that they had to be spending Mm -hmm. on that beginning but they they definitely got there um i read they also used a lot of maquettes for this film which is clay models of the characters and i think they had started to use these um at disney more and more and i think for a film like this where we're talking about how different all the characters look and how Uh, Such a unique, not only facial expressions, but body types is just so important to have everybody on the same page, everybody having Mm. a visual reference. I also think it's just like the coolest job ever to just make like clay models for Disney. Can I have that job? Yes. I don't know how to do it, but... Talk to Tim Burton. He's one of the ones who
1: really started with that, with Mm -hmm. Nightmare Before Christmas in the mid-'90s as well, like, because that was stop action, so they, like, maquettes were in, like, you couldn't make the film without Without them. Without it, yeah. Uh, But one of the things I thought of while you were talking about, you know, the fact that their body types are different and being able to capture it from every angle, the fact that this film is one of the first to have, like, choreography like all the yeah. martial arts that they have going on, would also be, I can see a really a really beneficial thing to have a maquette. So like, you know, I'm thinking just I'll make a man out of you, which we will get to oh, in yeah. earnest. Oh, but yeah. a, a scene like that one where you have characters that are jumping, running, punching, kicking, being able to see it from all angles so that you can really capture all the movement would be huge for sure.
0: Yeah, because remember you're also... Uh, working with a crew that's not unseasoned, but maybe mm-hmm. not quite as veteran as the teams that, you know, had been working in the Burbank studios. Totally. So I know that you
1: mentioned the year 1994 as a big one, uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of this stuff with the leadership team was happening. But this film actually started, you know, going into development in 1993, which is a big mm-hmm. year for my family because my baby brother was born. Oh, Um, I know. Isn't that nice? Uh, not that he needs a shout out. His head's big enough. But uh, yeah, so the project officially started in 1993. And classic Disney, they're like, OK, we want to do this, but we don't know how. So they were trying to choose between two potential projects. They had a Scottish story with a dragon. That sounds cool. <laughs> I can't wish it. Like, I'm, I'm, just getting, I'm just getting how to train your dragon vibes. I'm going to be yeah. honest. Like Jared yeah, Butler, too. I know he's Irish, but like, I'm just getting really that. Um, Or this story called China doll, which is about an oppressed Chinese girl who was supposed to be saved by a British prince. Now I don't need to go into why that's a problem and ultimately why that was scratched. Um, You know, if you want to hear more about why that's a problem, listen to our Pocahontas episode. We get into that. Um, But there's a children's author named Robert D. Sansucci who was consulted about the project. I honestly, I don't know why, if anyone knows, let us know, (laughs) but, uh, he was consulted about this project for some reason, and he wisely suggested the Chinese legend of Fa Mulan instead, which is how we got Mulan as the basis for this film. And for those who are not aware, Mulan is actually a traditional Chinese folktale. And through this folktale, uh, Mulan became one of China's greatest heroines, like beloved by everybody. Um, and the it was originally recorded in a Chinese poem entitled The Ballad of Hua Mulan. And interesting fact... Hua Ping is the term for a flower vase, which is also slang for an effeminate man. So when Mulan names herself Ping, this is kind of a nod to a cultural reference that might indicate her duality. Yeah, which is kind of really cool. Mm -hmm. And the name Mulan means magnolia, or like cherry blossom, which is also a recurring motif in the film. So there's a lot of symbolism, which as a media studies junkie i love but we're not going to (laughs) waste all of your time with me going into every single symbol there are so many great resources out there about this film that if you want to get into that let me know we can talk about it but anyway Mm. the story originally started with mulan as a character who was very unhappy and was looking to escape from her life and an arranged marriage to shang which is kind of similar to things we've heard in other princess films Uh, but Disney realized that they had a very unlikable character (laughs) with this, with (laughs) this kind of plot. She just kind of sounded not great. Yeah. Just, I don't know. There's something about it. There's just, she's not likable. Like it's kind of like, is she spoiled? Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I don't like her. And they kind of lost the intention of the legend as well. Right. Which was a girl who wanted to save her father and was much more noble, braver, more badass. They're
0: also, they're also really trending in a way where yes. the female characters have a lot more mm. power. Yes. And, you know, like I think Pocahontas was a really big stepping stone. So kind of coming off of mm-hmm. that and that development yes. that was a huge factor too.
1: Totally. They dipped their toe with Jasmine. Mm-hmm. Belle gave it a push, but like, did eh. she get leave shore? In your opinion, no. <laughs> Pocahontas then like actually jumped off and now Mulan is full out up in the air, leg extended, bamboo pole in hand, ready to hit me in the throat, you know, Mm -hmm. like she's, she's got it. So what they ended up doing then is maintaining the flaws in the character from the original legend, but also adding in more of the family motivation that made people really fall in love with her as the driving force behind her actions. So Mm -hmm. that's where we get this beautiful relationship between her and her dad, just truly like my favorite part of the movie. I know that there's so many great parts, but those moments are so real. They're so genuine and so vivid to me emotionally that it's no wonder that, you know, the team realized like, oh, we've got something special here if we make this the reason that people fall in love with her.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just making that her motivation, not only for acting, but one of my favorite scenes is when she's, you know, it's like, She's just found out that her dad's got to go to war. There's nothing that she can Mm -hmm. do. She's out in the rain. The way they've animated that scene is really beautiful. I read it was one of the first ones they did, and she's so caged in. Like at first, she's caged in by her hair, and then uh, Mm. goes to her looking at her reflection, which is you know also a motif in the film. And she's caged in, you know, by how that shot is framed, and then there's just that. Music shift, and I remember this music from the trailer. Like, I remember loving this movie from that just music moment in the trailer. I I was already sold. It's so
1: powerful. It's
0: so powerful, Mm -hmm. and it's literally her deciding that she's taking control of the situation and that she does have power to affect this and she is going to Mm. change it. And it's just like, gives me chills every time. Like, it's such a good moment. For her and just like, yeah, I love I love the dad motivation and I love the her just deciding that she's going to do something about this on her own completely. Oh
1: yeah, like once they finally got there, it's like about time, you mm-hmm. know. Truly a breath yes. of fresh air. Now I'm so glad that you mentioned the music. What a what a great segue. Now for one thing, I just want to complain to Spotify and Disney. Y'all better put that piece of music, which is entitled "Short Hair." Why can't I get it on Spotify? I can't listen. The piece of music you're describing is yeah. not available on Spotify. What? And it Spotify, get it together. It's not on the soundtrack. Like, so that's why I'm blaming Disney for this as well. Like, yeah. I've got issues. Uh, hashtag Julia Michaels. The music for this movie is. It's interesting because mm-hmm. this is this was one of those projects where. Unlike when Howard and Alan, our beloved boys, were in charge, they helped define the story. They helped Mm -hmm. move the production of the film along. They were integral to all of those character story kind of discussions. This film was not the case. Basically, the music team was approached by the story team and were told we need a song here and we need a song here and we need a song here. So they were working with very different constraints and there was similar to how the leadership at the top was a little shaky. The music team for the Soma shaky as well. You guys may remember the name, Steven Schwartz, uh, our guy, the lyricist from Pocahontas and other amazing films like Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, the mm-hmm. absolute best. He was originally supposed to write the score for this film because as you may recall from our pocahontas episode he is both a composer and a lyricist so he was originally supposed to do the project but was actually poached by none other than jeffrey katzenberg himself to go to work on prince of Egypt. i know katzenberg started dreamworks was like we're gonna do prince of egypt aka the best film of all time don't come for me in the comments it is the best movie of all time i don't want to talk about it right now we don't need to go there (laughs) But Katzenberg was the one responsible for having Steven leave Disney for the time and to go to DreamWorks. And since he had just moved to DreamWorks, Disney actually threatened to remove Schwartz's name from Pocahontas and Hunchback if he didn't choose to work with them on Mulan, which to me is kind of a little petty. That's kind of shady. It is petty. But yeah. I mean, ultimately, I don't think that happened. We still see his name on those yes. projects. So obviously, they came to agree on what to do, but that left Disney with the problem who's going to do the music for Mulan? So they ended up approaching a guy named David Zippel as the lyricist and a composer named Matthew Wilder. And the two were introduced on what they refer to as the best blind date ever. Zippel had actually hmm. worked with Alan Menken on Hercules. So he had some Disney blood in him, but Wilder was hundred percent new to the world of animation. And I believe he's Canadian. Disney actually found him at a oh, theater festival nice. in Canada. So I have to assume he's Canadian. Let's go Matt Wilder. So in order to prepare for this soundtrack, Wilder being, you know, the young sprout that he was, you know, green a little bit, he spent a lot of time becoming familiar with Chinese instrumentation. So he relied really heavily on other western songwriters like rogers and hammerstein like the sound of music people gilbert and Mm -hmm. sullivan all of those who had previously tried to bring an asian motif into western culture because he's like this is going to be the challenge right as a musician it's like we're still a western entertainment company but we need it to have authentic asian influences in the music or this just isn't going to work so they they were playing with a lot of different ideas for songs. Originally, Mushu was going to have a song called Keep Em Coming that was cut because Eddie Murphy's like, yo, you thought I came on here to sing? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, that is not a thing that I'm going to do. So they instead replaced that with dialogue, um, instructing Mulan on how to stay undercover as a soldier. So that scene where she's walking into the camp and he's like, one, two, three, and strut it and like telling her to like,
0: you oh, know, slap him on the behind.
1: They like that. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's a cute scene. Which
1: which makes more sense for Mushu's character. Like Eddie I Murphy agree. was correct yeah. to be like, I'm not singing. <laughs> like I'm Agreed. Not. he's like, I sang on Shrek for a hot second. Actually, he hadn't done Shrek yet. Never mind. Walk no, it back. He, hadn't done he Shrek hasn't yet sung yet. yet. He yeah. hasn't <laughs> sung as Donkey yet. Um but this is a great actually example of how the story team is the one calling the shots with the music. They're like, Oh, he's not going to do that. Okay. Well then no song. Sorry. We're cutting it. Like there was no room for Wilder and Zippel to interject there. So they moved on. They're like, okay, we're not doing anything with Mushu. That's fine. Let's look at our main girl. So they wrote reflection and kind of similar to colors of the wind. It was the first song written for the film. So this, you know, big emotional ballad first one out of the gate and It had the same problem as Part of Your World, where the first version of the song was considered too boring, too long, like people Mm -hmm. aren't going to be engaged, which of course is crazy business because it's beautiful. But anyway, the final version was ultimately shortened because the Disney execs thought it slowed the momentum down too much and they actually wanted to cut it all together. But Wilder and Zippel were not going to let that happen. So they fought it
0: tooth and nail to keep it. So I have to just I have to interject with, you know, my (laughs) unpopular opinion for the music. I do not like oh, Reflection. Yeah. Like, I don't like it at all. I don't like it in the movie. I don't like the Christina Aguilera version. Oh, to no. To me, it's Christina, like, no.
1: No, no, it's,
0: no. To Terrible. me, it's honestly like the weakest point, I think, in the whole film is Reflection. And it's I... supposed to be the, like, powerful <laughs> heroine moment. You know how I love those. And I just... You do. I can't. But you know what? One.
1: Rewatching it... I knew that you don't care for reflection at all. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have no opinion. The Christina version can burn. Like it's not good. It is, it's, it's a cat having its skin stripped off. Like I don't (laughs) like it, but I, I feel I also need to clarify for anyone listening. Who's deeply offended by what I just said. I don't care for Christina Aguilera's musical stylings there. I said it, whatever, come at me, I guess you're already not voting for me in the polls. So what's the difference? Like, honestly, I'm already a loser in your eyes, so it's fine. Um, but see, the the scene of reflection, I find overall a beautiful experience. So even though mm-hmm. the song is not my most favorite, Leah Salonga's singing voice is so crisp and so clear. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, I, be, I believe her, even though it's not the best song that I've ever heard, if that makes sense. I enjoy the whole yeah. experience, but listening to, if it came on That's in the car, fun. I'm skipping it. Like I'm not belting totally. it out in the car.
0: Yeah, it's it's not on my
1: Spotify playlist. No, no. But what is on your Spotify playlist, I'll make a man out of you. Now, I don't oh. think either of us need to explain why
0: it's the best. Like, Oh, my gosh. It's on every playlist, Curbs. It's on the workout playlist. Every playlist. It's on the pump-up yep. playlist. It's on the, like, oh, yeah. chilling in the car playlist. Just it's on my, like, even the <laughs> instrumental version. It's on my Disney instrumental oh, yeah. playlist. It's everywhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's
1: a reason that Daisy Ridley played this as her pump up song when she was going to film all her lightsaber battles. This is what she would play to get psyched. I mean, yeah, you've said it before. It's the best montage in the history of the world. Uh, Direct quote from Lish Mandarahe. Yep. Uh, I would probably have to agree because I can't think of one that's better. But if I think of one, I guess I'll let you know. Yeah. My world was rocked when I rewatched it. Honestly, like, I mean, first of all. Shang is shirtless from the beginning. I'm yeah. already in. Like, I'm already giving it a 10 out of 10 because B.D. Wong's voice speaking, Donny Osmond's singing voice, and then that body? Stop it. It's perfect. Stop it right now. Yeah. The only one that's better is Gaston, and he's yeah. not here in this movie, so we yeah. have to settle for Shang. Um, what I think is so great is how much work went into this song. Like, I feel like it deserves the credit it gets mm-hmm. because they put the time and the work in like it started with just the title and the lyrics it started with just this idea I think Stephen Schwartz actually had written a demo before he was moved over to DreamWorks he had written something that was called like we'll make a man out of you and Wilder and Zippel were like cute like we can make it better though <laughs> like sorry yeah. Stephen like respect but like we're moving on from that and gonna make it better and it was written as a way of giving the audience more insight into what Shang is thinking and feeling because he is an integral character, but he's not given a lot of like face time. Most of yeah, the things we true. learn about him are through Mulan's eyes yeah. or through Chifu's eyes or his father's like, we, we're, he's reflected with everyone. <laughs> Reflection. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So this was supposed to be a way for us to get to know him and start to understand who he is as a leader, who he is as a soldier, like all those types of things. And The first demo of this song is actually the version that was used in the film. It has over a hundred piece orchestra. So there's more than a hundred instruments being used a male choir that was overseen by a rock arrangement legend named Paul Buckmaster. If your name is Paul Buckmaster, you better get it together. You better work Paul Buckmaster (laughs) with this male rock choir. Okay. Like I, man, I don't know. I, I get so fired up about this, but like, there's so many things done well with this. And as you said, like the power of montages is really put on display with this. Like it's, it really paved the way for using montages and music to advance the story in future films. Like we've talked about that, like Tarzan, son of man, right? Like another fantastic montage where a whole lot of time passes without us as the audience, having to sit through boring years of a character's life. And I mean, one of the, I think it was either Wilder or Zippel who said this quote. I'm so sorry. Don't remember. But it's, they said, in the span of a single song, Mulan questions her abilities, gets kicked out of training camp, tests herself one last time, and proves herself worthy in like yeah. three and a half minutes.
0: So much happens. I always, like, when I'm watching this, I'm like always worried they're gonna run out of time. Like when he's like pack <laughs> up, go home, you're through. I'm like she still has to climb up the thing. They got to go through all oh of this my again, goodness. and I'm like always stressed. That's so funny that they're gonna run out of time, but they always <laughs> figure it out. Hold on, get up the pole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean,
1: when you look at the soundtrack, like this song alone makes it under like makes it clear why they earned a nomination for the very short oh, category yeah. of original musical or comedy score, but. The, the soundtrack as a whole is an achievement, even though it's not as expertly incorporated as some of the earlier Renaissance I, films. I will it say is that still worth-
0: I absolutely love the score and Make a Man mm-hmm. Out of You. Some of the other sung songs in the film are not my favorite, but the score yep. is really, really beautiful. And this song is yep. honestly, like, unbeatable for me. It's so good. I'm obsessed with it. I mean, I... I like what's yeah, even it's... listening to you for the past few minutes because I was listening to the song <laughs> in my head because I'm just... How is that different yeah. from any other time we yeah. talk, honestly? True. <laughs> You're too busy True. counting
1: your Scenario D showdown wins. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, pay attention to me.
0: Let's let's talk about Mulan herself. So we've got let's the third non-Caucasian heroine following Jasmine and Pocahontas. Um, and yes. the first, actually, since Princess Aurora to have both of her parents alive So I thought that was very interesting. I mean, it's like this whole thing with Disney that they always say, oh, like the parents always die or the mom's always dead or whatever. Mulan, she's the one, both her parents (laughs) and that Moana now too. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely made the film a lot more family oriented, which is something that Mm -hmm. I know you and I both really love about her. Resonance, yeah. we, when you're going through all the princess movies, like back to back, like we've been doing, that's the real mm. standout because you haven't really had that, you know, strong parental relationship like she has with her dad yeah. just yet. So that was really mm-hmm. cool to see. And just, I think what makes the family
1: relationship so important and powerful here, too, is that. The romance is not front and center in this film. And I know that's one of the reasons you always loved it as a kid was because it wasn't like a girly. Don't get me movie. started
0: like, sh- on how I don't even want the romance to even be there. But yes, I will take that. It's not the main plot. Yeah. Anyway.
1: I will say as a, as a side note before I'm gonna let you finish, but uh, <laughs> a side note rewatching it. I don't know if maybe it's because I'm older and understand like, relationship dynamics, both platonic and romantic, better now. But re-watching it, I don't see as overt of, like, a love connection between Mulan and Shang as I did when I was a kid. I think when I was a kid, I just put them together because I'm like, that happens in every other movie. But watching it now, I'm like, I don't necessarily see it there. Like, and it might just be because I'm looking at it critically. But I, I feel like they actually... Whether they wanted to or I don't know why they threw us the romantic bone at the end, but like I feel they actually pulled off of that significantly
0: mm-hmm. and achieved something very
1: interesting.
0: I I go instead. back and forth between whether I, you know, I was just kind of harsh on it a minute ago, but I do go back and forth mm. on whether I like it or not because I it does feel like a little bit forced at the end like they tacked it on just because this is a princess movie and the princess movies have a love Mm -hmm. interest and like you know it has to end in this certain way and I don't like that like in that case I feel like we could have just taken it out and the movie would have still been really successful but I also Mm -hmm. like the fact that they're showing this female character who is you know smart and creative yep. and you know mm-hmm. making calls and decisions on her own she's really strong and showing that as an attractive feature to someone yes. who is as desirable as Shang so
1: <laughs> oh 10 out of I, 10 for sure I Shang, do appreciate honestly. that
0: and and just to go yeah. back to like all those awesome things I was saying as Mulan I of course I think that she – her brains are underrated. Like, she is smart. I'm like, move over, Belle. Belle is not the smart princess. Mulan is the smart princess. Belle does not – I mean, listen to our Unpopular Opinion episode if you want to hear my rants about (laughs) Belle. You want to hear Lish go off. But she makes a lot of unintelligent decisions, whereas this whole movie is – Mulan making, like, smart, creative decisions on the fly over and over and over mm-hmm. again to literally save China. And I just think that that part of her character is <laughs> often very underrated, that yeah. she is just so resourceful, so intelligent. And, you know, she kind of starts off, like, awkward and clumsy, but really comes into mm-hmm. her own when she's able to make decisions for herself and just gives herself right. that permission to be who she is. And I really, really love that about this character.
1: Yeah. I mean, she is a fantastic character. So I want us to take just a second now to talk about, uh, I was about to say the elephant in the room. I don't know why (laughs) Uh, he's not an elephant and uh, he's not in the room. Thank goodness. But Sean Yu, Sean Yu, uh, Mm. the villain in this film. Now he was inspired by Attila the Hun, which is a real historical figure that gave the film a little bit more rooting in reality. Uh, because he was like a barbarian warrior who murdered like a lot of people so like shan yu's actions and his bad guy like psychopathy yeah like it's it's <laughs> reminiscent of who attila the hun was yeah. allegedly um in the past but He is considered to be one of the film's few weaknesses by a lot of other critics because he's not overly memorable and he's super serious in a way that doesn't seem to jive with the rest of the film. Now I do love his dark twisted sense of humor. Like when, how many scouts does it take to deliver a message and his guy says one and then cocks the arrow back. I, even as a kid, I was like, that is crazy.
0: (laughs) I like, I kind of disagree. Like, and maybe it's because I was, younger when I watched this mm-hmm. but to me as a kid like he was terrifying this was a scary yeah. villain there's just enough like realism to yeah. him and the situation yeah. like you know it's a whole war and to me yeah it was always like scary like even scarier than like a Ratcliffe or something like because he also has the right. look to go with it I yeah, yeah. I found him really terrifying
1: well, it, I mean, his goal was to oppress the Chinese people, which is sadistic and scary. I think yeah. it's funny that as a kid, I only laughed because you're you're scared of someone who you should be scared of. You know who my brothers and I were afraid of? Stromboli. We never made it past Stromboli in Pinocchio because he was too scary. So we just thought the movie ended there for a very long time. <laughs> and anyone I wearing mean... a cape was off limits. They were scary. I didn't like capes. No capes. <laughs> no capes. <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, no, Sh- Shan Yu is, is scary. I think he's scarier to me now because, again, I understand more of, like, what he meant, but I, as a kid, would have mm-hmm. to agree with some of these other critics who were like, he's too serious, he's borderline boring for me, like, let's get back to Mushu. Shan Yu's interesting. I, I'm kind of on the fence about him. I, one, one of the uh, interesting facts I wrote down about this movie that Lish was, like, curves. That's not interesting. It's that <laughs> Shan Yu is one of... I can't even say it. Jean-Yu <laughs> is one of the only <laughs> Disney villains to be shown uh-huh. on a horse. And I thought it was interesting in the moment. It's Nobody not. cares. <laughs> it's not. She told me, like, we were having a conversation about something else. Uh-huh. And she's like, I saw you put this fun fact. It's not fun. <laughs> like, it's nowhere near, like, <laughs> stupid. anyway this is why i lose the polls Uh. everything comes back to the polls now i am pleased to announce uh for everyone listening and to you that chinese and chinese american voice actors were cast for the majority of the main characters and when i say the majority i mean those that were in the original legend of Mm -hmm. Mulan they honored the ethnicity of those characters which I think is very important it emulates what they tried to do in Pocahontas so there is a level of cultural care there which Mm -hmm. I really appreciate and of course the biggest diversion is Eddie Murphy as Mushu and I know you don't love Mushu the way some people do I remember loving him a lot as a kid and now I find him Mm -hmm. amusing but I also think he's almost in the film too much like his his plot line is almost too forward for me. I would like slightly yeah. less of him and more Mulan. I don't even know
0: what, like if there could it's, be another little it's baby. A bit plot of point the, it's a bit of the Olaf problem where it's like, you know, he's there yes. for the kids, but when you're an adult, it's mm. like, he's kind of overused and annoying, but I, you know, I get why he's there. And as a kid, I, I was a big fan as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that Mushu is annoying to me. I just Mm -hmm. feel like watching it again. Now I'm surprised by how much attention he gets. And I don't know. I, of course I'm speculating. It could be because Eddie Murphy was the name that would draw people to the movie because a Western audience would recognize his name and very few others in this film, but he was not actually originally going to be in the movie because he's not in the original poem that Mulan was inspired by. So Filmmakers wanted to incorporate some sort of dragon symbol because that's a big, you know, a big symbol in Chinese culture, but they didn't want the dragon to be too sinister or menacing. They didn't want him to be scary. Like Shan Yu and his, like, falcon are already pretty creepy and, like, evil. We don't need another thing like that. And then they came up with this idea of the dragon being travel size for your convenience mm-hmm. and out came Mushu, which is... I mean, he's that fantastical humor first character that like you said, Olaf delivers that the Olaf kind of vibe. Yeah. A lot of core audiences have come to expect this from Disney films. Yeah. So if Mulan did not have a character like that, it probably would have failed, to be honest. We I probably would not like it as
0: much. Like he eased a lot of the tension in the movie. It is mm-hmm. very serious at points and most yes. of the characters are super serious, mm-hmm. so bringing yep. him in also as the comic relief really you know brought the tone of the movie down to a yes. level where kids yeah. would enjoy it and not just be And terrified. I think
1: that's I think that's why I would ultimately say he doesn't annoy me and Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even use the term overused necessarily with him. I just was surprised by how prominent he is because it feels very pointed that like, and Mushu is here. And I also came across uh, your favorite story artist had a little addition to this film. You want to guess who it was?
0: Oh no. Who?
1: Yeah. Uh, Joe Grant, uh, who we still know nothing about. Yep. Veteran story artist Joe Grant himself was actually responsible for Cricky. And he thinks that Cricky is the unsung hero of this movie, which I think is a bit of a
0: reach, Joe. (laughs) At some point, I am going to have to actually look him
1: up. Cricky wasn't supposed to be in the movie. He fought really hard for him for some reason. Maybe just for something to do. I don't know. He was bored. I
0: like Cricky. <laughs> I, I need. Yeah, you like Cricky. I like the Cricky Mushu like together. Like that, you can sit by yeah. me. Like that's really yeah. No, true. that's true. Yeah, yeah.
1: Who's Cricky and who's
0: Mushu between you and I? Oh, you're you're always Mushu. I think we can <laughs> we can say. No so you can sit who. by me. Yes, I'll sit by you. Speaking of that scene. Uh, This was a movie where they're integrating slowly and surely into all their films a lot more of the CG technology and trying to see how that works with 2D in these films. And a big example of that is The Stampede and The Lion King. This was Mm -hmm. one of the first times where they used a huge scene, really important scene in the movie, CG and it's starting to like look really good this was kind of the inspiration for that Hun scene and why they thought that could actually look doable so a lot of interesting technology was developed on this film
1: yeah like I mean you mentioned there's a lot of elements in this film where they used a combination of 2D and CG Mm -hmm. like all the rain all the flickering candles all of those kind of more organic moving forms and didn't they didn't they call this software Attila oh
0: didn't yes. They call it that? yes
1: they did right yeah I think that was supposed to be like a cheeky little nod to the fact that Shanyu is inspired by Attila the Hun and it's that scene was I monumental. I did so. not
0: put that together that's no job curbs oh. yeah
1: <laughs> you're welcome I'm yeah. here for you yeah uh score another one for team curbs there all right yeah. I will take it um, and I actually also heard that they created a second variant of it that they named Dynasty, which they use specifically for that um, scene of the crowd outside the Emperor's Palace at the end. Yes. So they kind of, RenderMan became like a bunch of other little baby rendering softwares. Um, And this avalanche sequence on the mountain took over a year to animate on its own, which is crazy. That's a very long time for For one sequence. Yeah. And I mean, they're an impactful couple seconds. Like I, when I was watching it with my roommate earlier this week, even before the scene started, she's like, oh, I love this scene. And I said, why? Mm -hmm. And she's like, because it looks so good. Like. There's so much movement and it just like, it's exciting. Like it's kind another of to one I mean, that I
0: remember from the trailer. Like I remember, yes. you know, seeing like, of course it has to be in the trailer. It's like one of the best moments and mm-hmm. it's yeah. super impactful. And I mean, when you look at it that way, it's like, of course it took a year. The special
1: effects animators who were in charge of that scene, their names are Joseph Gilland and Garrett Wren, in case anyone cares. Um, They worked with a team of over a dozen animators before it was ready for final production, which is like a fairly large team. And they actually switched between CGI and hand-drawn animation from shot to shot in the close-up sequences of Shan Yu and the Chinese army barreling down the mountain because they wanted to capture every individual hoofprint. And they wanted to capture like every horse's face, every warrior's face, every soldier's face. And this they considered the great wall of the film for their animators like this was yeah, the absolutely. huge monumental task right and i mean horses are one of the most difficult things to animate because all their limbs move at different times their heads are so dynamic and expressive and their tails so making this charge cg was the most efficient way to get this done because they could copy and
0: paste more bits of it and still have oh, it look sure. realistic all the animators here sure. yeah
1: oh absolutely so i mean an incredible achievement. Absolutely incredible. I love watching mm. it every time. It takes my breath away.
0: Yeah, it's it's huge if you are like watching the movies preceding to this. Maybe now this is something we're a little bit more used to, but for the time, this right. was just an amazing achievement. Something I mm-hmm. learned about this movie as well. Remember when we were doing the Snow White episode and we talked about the mm-hmm. multi-plane camera? that Walt and his team Ooh, yes. built for that movie mm-hmm. to add extra depth and dimension to the 2D world, that was of course, a big inspiration for how they were combining the 2D and the 3D space. So they made something really similar that they called the faux plane camera. And Ooh, a good example of when this was used, if you think of that shot in the beginning of the Great Wall, they were basically mm-hmm. able to take their... 2D artwork, put it in a 3D space and add depth and dimension to it, so that you can actually Ooh, feel yeah. that it's you. You feel that there's depth and there's space there, but you also aren't losing the 2D artistry, which was really important for them on this film. They didn't want to have a full CG look and mm-hmm. fully, you know, commit to that. A because it still doesn't look amazing but they're making a lot of big strides like for example we talked about the ballroom scene in beauty and the beast you mm-hmm. look at that scene and it's while it's beautiful it's definitely out of place and that you can tell oh this is the cg scene in this movie mulan yes. they really made a lot of effort like you even said in the big scenes to incorporate 2d where they needed to to make sure that everything really meshed together yeah and it's done really it really is seamless yeah Mm -hmm. Another huge hurdle for them in this one was the crowd scene at the end where there's like basically all of China there and Mulan needs to save them. (laughs) So the stakes are high. All of China. All of China. So they needed to draw all of China. Not easy. Mm -hmm. Um, What they did for this, which was actually really creative, is they took the animation that they had done from other scenes, uh, mainly the camp Mm -hmm. ones, because they had a bunch of different characters, And they were able to use the camera technologies that they were developing and reuse a lot of that, changing their expressions, being able to change their movement and starting to use computer systems a lot more for this so that you can just kind of tell the crowd to jump up and down and clap. And then the crowd does it, you know, instead of having to actually draw All these people jumping and down, jumping up and down. And this was a huge time saver for them at the end because things took so long in the beginning. You talked about that big Hun scene. They were really running out at the end. So this was a huge save for them where the technical team really came in clutch to kind of make this scene work and come together. Yeah. So the technical team was the
1: Mulan of the of the film. They were, team they were. Actually. They saved they saved the movie. That's the great Green analogy. Saved China. It's yeah, it's an equal equal stakes there. I yeah. think <laughs> absolutely. Well, I mean, clearly, a lot of incredible things went into making this film, mm. but the films that had come out right before it, so Hercules and Hunchback of Notre Dame, they had not done so hot for audiences. People were. <laughs> I mean, Hunchback was a heavy story, so, like, I get it. Hercules is not everyone's cup of tea, so there were lukewarm responses to those films, and as a result, Disney decided to really restrict the marketing for Mulan Mm -hmm. quite a bit. So, you know, we talked about, like, Pocahontas had this crazy premiere in Central Park, and they had, you know, crazy, like, amounts of money for the Cinderella premiere or The Little Mermaid where there was all this merchandise already ready for it. Like, they were really leaning into that with this one they're like this could be a disaster Mm -hmm. so let's not do that so um they spent only half of what they had for hercules a year or two before so cut their budget significantly down and it was just a very small premiere for the film at the hollywood bowl they had some chinese lanterns and fortune cookies and then they had a small promo campaign with mcdonald's to make some happy meals toys and that was kind of it they're like let's see how people respond and i mean this film did much better than the filmmaking team thought it would. They were the second highest grossing family film of the year, second only to Bugs Life. So I mean, at that point, Disney didn't own Pixar, but like it was common. So really, they still they still had a win. And one of the reasons that some film historians and film critics have said that this that Mulan was so successful was that Asian representation in the 1990s was extremely rare. Like American audiences were not used to seeing Asian people on screen. And as a result, many Asian American people were less comfortable with seeing themselves on screen because they assumed it would be negative. So when Disney announced Mulan, there were a lot of people with a lot of conflicting emotions because, you know, advocates for representation of Asian American people in media were happy. But they were also very worried because if the film was unsuccessful, they were afraid no other studio would ever try to tell stories about their culture. And... I mean, some people were nervous about the portrayal of Mulan, like they thought she was still too foreign looking, she was too individualistic, Um, it was considered by some to be too politically correct, you know, like it was too Western for people. Ultimately, Mulan was seen as a win and was actually awarded the Media Action Network for Asian Americans Award for its inclusion of Asian American actors. And there were a lot of positive social and psychological effects of this film being Mm -hmm. made by a studio like Disney. For one, it helped shift a lot of beauty standards for people. So there were significant amounts of merchandise put out after the success of the film's initial release. So like Barbie dolls, Mattel figurines, Happy Meals, whatever, that made it very front and center for people. And it showed Asian American girls who had grown up with white standards of beauty that they too are beautiful and should be proud of what they look like, which just should be anyway, but like they needed a toy basically to make this happen, which just breaks my heart for so many reasons. But anyway. Yeah. And then it also created a sense of pride for Asian American children. Like they could look at Mulan, see how people are responding to her and be like, I am also
0: like, I am Mulan. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm like Mulan. We're cut from the same cloth. And to have her represented so positively.
1: Yes. And so powerfully. Those very positive social effects were also hand in hand with a lot of really great changes in the way that animated storytelling was happening as well. Mm -hmm. Like Disney really set a few new standards for how stories should be told through animation as well.
0: There's also just a really good tonal balance overall in the film you know, where it goes from opening with Sean Yu, where it's super terrifying, and he threatens the entire country, and then jumps over to Mulan and her matchmaker oh, yes. scene, and just yep. making a huge mess of that. And, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that they struggled with the likability of her, where adding things like that in, so many girls are going to automatically relate to her kind of bumbling around in that situation, because, mm-hmm. like, let's be honest, that would... Totally, be both of us there. Absolutely, setting her yeah. butt on fire, just like, yep, yeah, like
1: we don't want to be there, and we're messing it up. Yeah, as well. exactly.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. so it just does <laughs> yep. a really good job of both setting the stakes and making this movie, making a lot of the pressure on Mulan, but also adding in the comedic flair and a light-hearted mm-hmm. tone, which was definitely needed. Kind of hand in hand with that tonal balance is they also
1: worked the set and the landscape into the action a little bit different to help root the story and what they're talking about. So everything comes to life because of what it's connected to and the fact that they're constantly interacting with everything. So, for example, like Mulan zip lining down that string of lanterns mm-hmm. at the end. It draws our attention to a very strong symbol of, like, Asian culture and Asian celebrations, those being the lanterns, while connecting, you know, the palace to the rest of the Chinese people, and she's moving from, like, this position of power up here to being down there with everyone else. Like, a lot of scenes like that, or, like, Fazu and Mulan in the cherry orchard, like, cherry blossoms are, again, like, another strong symbol of Chinese landscapes and Chinese standards of beauty. And so, then
0: bringing them back at the end yes. to bringing her, you know, what she had to go through mm. to impress the matchmaker it visually and then having the guys dress up in that yes. way at the end. Like, such a good moment. Yes. Make a man Absolutely. out of you reprise in the background. So good. Mm-hmm. Like, basically building on... Disney,
1: like Disney already had exceptional attention to detail with their mm-hmm. backgrounds. You mentioned like Hunchback, Hercules, like a lot of small details, but they demonstrated how to do it well and in a way that doesn't need to be small, tiny details that your eye can't even yeah. process. It's like you can give your audience details and clues about what they are about to see, how the story connects together, how the characters work in this world without making it so obvious. Yeah. And then finally... Mulan opened the door for animated films to tell much more dramatic or complicated stories than in previous ones. And I'm not going to spend too long on this because there are so many other resources that do a better job of summarizing and like going into depth on these details. But like Mulan has been seen by many people as a queer icon as well as Shang, because Mm -hmm. their relationship is not strictly heterosexual or romantic or platonic. It's so many things all at one time. And I don't want to speak for people, members of that group, because I am not one of them. Uh, But you can see through the way that the story is told. It is not a surprise to me that there are a lot of queer kids out there who would watch Mulan as a kid and see themselves reflected there, pun intended, again, with Mm -hmm. reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, And whether Disney did it intentionally or not, it doesn't change that there were a lot of positive things that come from being shown a story at a young age that might mirror what you're experiencing without you being able to articulate it. Mm-hmm. So the film sure. fights against all sorts of traditions, expectations, individual mindsets of what your role is in the world. And there's no damsel in distress here. And you've mentioned it a few times, like, but Mulan mm-hmm. has agency. She makes plans for her own life and she don't need no man to do it. She chooses nope. to have a conversation with a man at the end because he comes and brings her helmet and says, you fight good. But like, I would be just as willing to accept (laughs) that. They're just like bros. Honestly, if Mulan two hadn't happened, I could have seen this being just like you fight good. I fight good. Let's hang. Yeah. But like, ultimately this story is so powerful for people because her power is found like in the fact that she is a woman Like, she rejects Mm -hmm. her military training in favor of her wit and the tools at her disposal as a woman in China to invade the palace and defeat Shan Yu. And Shan Yu doesn't care that she's a man or a woman. Like, all he cares is that she disrespected him on the mountain. Yeah. (laughs) If it had been, he would have been just as pissed. He's no more angry because it's Mulan. He's just like, the soldier from the mountain. yeah Yeah, like he doesn't care so i actually kind of like is he is he a feminist icon i don't know maybe (laughs) maybe that's that's going too far but all that to say these much more dramatic and complicated themes than we've seen in previous princess films had a very positive impact on a lot of kids and i think continues to because it Mm -hmm. is unlike those other princesses right so it just it just opens a door to so many other different types of conversations, and just adds a one more beautiful aspect, another beautiful blossom on top mm-hmm. of this already beautiful blooming magnolia yeah. tree of a film. All right, friends, we have reached that point in the episode where we must atone for the mistakes, the. Via- missteps and the flat out lies that we have told you. Yes, that is correct. I told you a lie. I did not intend to, but this is actually a three part lie when we break it down. So at the point in the episode where we're talking about music and I was getting very excited and I was talking about Matthew Wilder and I told you that he was Canadian. He is in fact not Canadian. He is very American. I then went on to say that he was, you know, a little sprout, which implied that he was early on in his career. Nope, still eh. not true. Uh, he, yeah, another another ex here from the judging panel. He actually had a very successful music career leading up to that, uh, making the soundtrack for Mulan. And then the third part of this is that I fear that I misled some of you into believing that he composed the score for the entire film. Now this is not true. Jerry Goldsmith did the orchestral score And Matthew Wilder was responsible for the music of the songs that the characters sang. So even though I knew that to be true, I fear that I might have misled you guys into thinking that that was, you know, different than it actually was. So I'm really sorry for having such a long apology and also for being so wrong on so many points. Matthew Wilder, if you ever listen to this, it was not intentional. I think you're a very talented American man who already had a career before this film and who did not... Compose the entire orchestral score of the film. This has been a Curbs TED Talk. Thank you for coming.
0: That's Three Strikes Curbs. You out. I'm out. I'm definitely out. <laughs> You're out. My apology this week is to Mulan herself and her fans everywhere because I ranked her way too low on the princess list. I know I mentioned this, but I've now had even more time to think about it. And she's, like, she's number five. Like, I'm pulling the plug. I'm swapping her and Rapunzel. Whoa! Oh. Started from the bottom, now we're here. I'm sorry, Milan. It was a grave error and I shan't make it again. I also feel that you owe
1: me an apology on this episode because you implied in the Pocahontas one, that I did no research and that I wasn't prepared. And I understand that my apology might make it look like that's true, but I would just I would like to start <laughs> the resources section of this episode by proving to you that I did a lot of prep for this and I deserve to be recognized. So for starters. I read a really incredible article from the New York Times by a man named Brian Chen called Mulan 1998, a moment of joy and anxiety for Asian American viewers. And that was very helpful for our impact section. I also read Mm -hmm. an article from Lunacy U by a guy named Alex Reinhold, thank you, Alex, called Renaissance Disney, five filmmaking lessons from Disney's Mulan. And finally, we cannot leave out this article by Maureen Lee Jenker for Entertainment Weekly where she talked all about the making of I'll Make a Man Out of You and every other hit song in the movie. So I definitely prepared for this episode. You cannot tell me this time that I did not contribute to that part of this recording.
0: So just one question is, which one of these articles uh, brought the fun fact that Sean Yu was the (laughs) second villain ever to be riding a horse? Because... That one needs a honorable that mention. That actually came from... yes. Yeah, well, that came from
1: Villains Delightfully Evil by Jen Darcy, which I have mentioned multiple times because, again, it's a great resource. Like, why stray? Yeah, you know, fun. why stray from the beaten I- path? So glad you brought that fun <laughs> fact up. I still find it fun and interesting.
0: I also uh, have a few resources that I want to mention. A Hollywood Reporter article that is super juicy, epic Disney blow-up, Go read that one. It's a good one. I also watched The Making of Mulan documentary by Stephen Broadway. And two of my favorite books that also contributed to the Disney at the Time section, The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, an absolute must read. And Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull, also a classic. Classic. Those are both A-plus books.
1: I have also read them. They did not contribute to my learning for this particular episode, but I'm glad you brought them up, Lish. Great, great, great reads. A-plus-plus. Mm, Absolutely. So, guys, if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, you know what to do. Make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D
0: Podcast wherever you love to listen. And don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You are going to love the magic we're making there.